0: On this edition of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, we name our Terp of the Week and run through superlatives for the 2017 Maryland baseball season. We wrap up the year for the Terps and look ahead to this summer as well as the MLB Draft, which is coming up in just one week. We chat with D1 Baseball's Frankie Polari about all of the Terps MLB Draft prospects and where they might be headed in their professional careers. Finally, a sign-off on the 2017 season and our last podcast of the year. Warning, you might tear up. We
1: did. Here we go. This is the Maryland Baseball Network Podcast. Here's your host, Jake Eisenberg.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the fortieth episode of the Maryland Baseball Network Podcast. Jake Eisenberg alongside Justin Galanti, and we're joined on this episode by the most respected member of the Maryland Baseball Program, baseball operations intern extraordinaire Megan Kane. Megan, thanks for joining us on this episode.
2: Thank you for having me today.
0: Well, the Maryland season ended yesterday, an 8-5 to defeat to the West Virginia Mountaineers in the Winston-Salem NCAA Regional. So this podcast serves not only as a season wrap-up, but also a look ahead to summer baseball, the MLB draft next week, and really what's to come for the Maryland Baseball Program. But before we get there... We'll of course have our Turb of the Week, we'll have a couple fairer fouls, and we're going to do some Maryland baseball superlatives. So Justin, we'll start with our Turb of the Week, and I think without question it has to be Brandon Gum.
1: And it was great to see Gum end his collegiate career, fifth year player after coming over from George Mason, with such a good three game NCAA tournament. And it was coming off a solid Big Ten tournament as well, where he hit the Grand Slam in the last game against Northwestern, but he swung the bat, excellent. And as the season went on, really turned it on at first base where, you know, first base might not sound like the hardest position in the world, but Brandon really got the hang of it after never playing it for his whole life. So a really impressive job. Gum has become a leader for this team, or I guess did become a leader for this team. And we don't know where he's going in the future, but one of the smartest baseball guys I've ever been around. And it was really nice to see Brandon close out his collegiate career as well as he did.
0: Yeah, Brendan Gum hit 500 in the NCAA tournament over the course of those three games and an on base percentage, get this Justin, of 688 in the NCAA tournament over the course of those three games. Finished the season leading the Turps in batting average at 338, which actually ties his career high that he set at George Mason a couple of years ago. Brendan Gum this season set career highs, well, tied his career high in batting average, set career highs in games played, hits home runs had five home runs this year including one against West Virginia after only having two against George Mason it was really an impressive season for a guy coming off a tough rotator cuff injury and it was great to see him have success here with his Maryland program
1: yeah I mean in the off season, coming into fall ball and even winter ball the Terps really did not know what they were going to get from gum and it was brought up to me yesterday uh, they said someone said to me imagine where this team would have been without Brandon gum I mean he was a cog in the middle of the lineup the entire year And it's hard to imagine what this team would have done, and it kind of speaks to a greater point of how much graduate transfers have changed collegiate sports. He was the first one Maryland had ever had, and he had quite the impact on this team, defensively, offensively, leadership, really everything put together. And it was really impressive to me when he was hurt earlier in the season, um, missed a few series. He became like another coach. I mean, he reminded me of Anthony Papio a little bit, who was on the team last year, and now he's a grad assistant. Brandon Gum, I could certainly see him filling some sort of role like that in the future. But he's just a really, really impressive player to be around, on and off the field. Great to see him this weekend. Um, hit as well as he did.
0: So Brandon Gum is our Turb of the Week, and now we'll go with our superlatives. For this Maryland season, we'll have a player of the year, a pitcher of the year, the biggest surprises of the season, a newcomer of the year, and, well, some of the funniest moments of the year. So I think it's best to start with our player of the year. And, and
1: Justin, why why don't you give the folks tuning in who it is? Well, just to clarify, player of the year means offensive player of the year. Right. It's not
0: necessarily the entire team MVP. It's more we split it up between offense and, and the pitchers, the pack and the peas
1: as they're referred to. So the MVP of the pack would be Marty Costas. Costas, for a large portion of the season, was the team leader in home runs, RBIs, and batting average. Finished up at 322, 13 ding-dongs, and 46 (laughs) RBIs, and... Well, the Marty Party went around the country this year, and he was really impressive. Tied for the team, leading homers, just behind Kevin Smith in RBIs. The on-base percentage, nearly 430, walked 34 times. That was tied for best on the team. Really, everything Marty did was impressive.
0: Yeah, I, I have to agree. His freshman season, a freshman All-American season. The batting average wasn't there, but we saw the power was there. He continued that power with the Baltimore Redbirds last summer, and well, like you said, brought the Marty party to the yard pretty much every day. Didn't hit a lot of home runs over the course of the second half of the season, but hit one against West Virginia, hit one against UMBC, hit one against or during the Big Ten tournament, I should say, really came on strong in the stretch when Maryland needed it most. And, well, the Marty Party, a big reason why the Terps were able to make their third NCAA tournament in four years.
1: Right, and there was a lot of shuffling in the middle of the order for the Terps this season between Gum and Dunn and Smith and guys like that. But the one constant was Marty Costas. He played in every single game, and there was no budging Marty in that lineup. So he was the guy the Terps looked to as their offensive producer, and he really provided it for the entire year. Now, next one's got to be Pitcher of the Year, and well, when you have the Big Ten Pitcher of the Year on your team, I don't think it's much of a conversation. It has to be Brian Schaefer.
0: I think there's no question that Brian Schaefer is the Pitcher of the Year for the Terps. Big Ten Pitcher of the Year, first time in program history that the Terps have had the Big Ten Pitcher of the Year. Brian Schaefer went 7-4 with a 2.66 ERA in 16 starts, 108 in the third innings pitch, struck out 109 batters, only walked 18 and held opponents to a two twenty three batting average. Some career highs in there for Brian Schaefer, career highs in innings pitched, career highs in strikeouts, and, well, led the conference in ERA for much of the season. His two postseason starts left a little bit to be desired, not the strongest finish for the junior right-hander, but the Turps wouldn't have been where they were without the Brian Schaefer that we saw every Friday night of the regular season
1: yeah I mean we've talked about it all the time on this podcast but Maryland's team was predicated on what Brian Schaefer did every Friday night and that was at least eight innings probably one run two runs no runs and a victory so not only does that get you the win in the opening game of the series but it also saves the bullpen for Saturday and Sunday in case you don't get length out of Tyler Bloom or Taylor Bloom so what Brian Schaefer did was honestly hard to describe how important it was for this team and there's no doubt he was the pitcher of the year.
0: Brian Schaefer a good chance to be drafted very high in the upcoming MLB draft we'll talk to Frankie Polari from D1 Baseball about all of the draft prospects for the Terps where they might end up what the conversation is like around them but Brian Schaefer if this was his final season in Maryland uniform finishes with 20 career wins that's tied for second all time 273 innings pitched 236 strikeouts and a final ERA of 3.07, really only inflated because of a freshman season where he had a four and a half ERA. But the evolution of Brian Schaefer from the midweek starter freshman year to the Sunday starter last year that was really the breakout star of this staff to the true ace that we saw this year was really something else, especially for a guy who came out of Pilesville, Maryland, very, very under-recruited.
1: And he stepped into the shoes of Mike Schwarren admirably this year. I mean, to take the spot of Without a doubt, the best pitcher in Maryland history, and do a good as good of a job as Brian did, is something impressive in and of its of itself. The ERA, as you said, got inflated a little bit at the end of the season, but it was under two until the postseason started. And it's hard to say enough about how good Brian Schaefer was this season, even at the start in games that the Terps lost against LSU. He threw really well in that game. Um, Lost an early game against Ball State, but that was kind of a bullpen issue. He pitched well there, so the record ended up seven and four, which doesn't jump off the screen. But you know, wins don't matter anymore, and it's the ERA that was so impressive for Brian. And the other thing that showed that he is really a true ace is even when he struggled in the pro- in the postseason, he was still able to give something of length. Six innings against Iowa, five on Friday in the loss against West Virginia. Maybe that's not the best in the world from Brian Schaefer, but it still sets up the bullpen a little bit where you don't need 21, 24 outs when your starter can't get out of the second inning. Even when Schaefer struggled, he was able to get the Terps 18, 21 outs, 15 outs, whatever it was, and that's the sign of a true ace. When you don't have your best stuff, can you still compete your way through a game?
0: So Marty Costas, our offensive MVP, Brian Schaefer, MVP of the pitchers, and now we'll go to our newcomers of the season. This includes freshman, and first year Maryland players. So it includes guys like Will Watson, who transferred in, Brandon Gum, who transferred in, as well as freshmen like Tyler Blome. And I think at first glance, you think Tyler Blome, the Big Ten Freshman of the Year, a really strong Sunday starter and Saturday starter on occasion for the Terps, and Maryland wouldn't have been where they are without him. But we leaned toward Brandon Gum, who really had a sensational season, as we mentioned earlier. We talked about all the numbers. Without Brandon Gum, I think you could argue the Terps would have been somewhat lost offensively. And, you know, just in terms of a persona around the team also, that veteran presence.
1: Yeah, we went with Gum, and this all assumes I can't vote for myself as newcomer of the year (laughs) to the Maryland baseball program. But as we've mentioned, Brandon ended up leading the team in batting average. And really the quiet number that was really impressive from Brandon was 13 stolen bases and 16 tries. And that's not so much speed, but being a really smart and heady base runner, had nine doubles, the five home runs were surprising power from Gum. Played a solid first base all season long, and Tyler Blome had a great year. Right. But
0: it's not to take anything away from Tyler blome who was sensational. I think it's safe to say as a freshman, he was.
1: But I, I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I just don't know where this team would have been without Brandon Gum.
0: With the, the case with Blom and the numbers that he put up this season, I think would easily qualify him to be on a freshman All-American list. Went 8-6 with a 3.48 ERA in 16 starts. Struck out 71, walked 35 in 75 innings. You really can't ask much more for a freshman. And I think the reason why we're not as mind-boggled by what Tyler Blome did is because he came in as such a highly-touted freshman arm, immediately thrown into that weekend rotation. The effort that Blome gave throughout the season, put in big spots, series-clinching games, having to pitch in, in crucial environments, rough environments like LSU and Nebraska in the Big Ten Tournament, In the NCAA regional, he really stepped up and didn't pitch like a freshman. He pitched like a guy who had been playing college baseball for two or three seasons already.
1: And I think we got a preview of the future. For Tyler Blome in his two postseason starts, they didn't last especially long, but his first three innings in the game against West Virginia on Sunday were incredibly impressive. And then while he got a really high pitch count in the start in the Big Ten tournament against Nebraska, he struck out 10 Huskers in that game. So if Tyler Blome can just hone his stuff a little bit more, I mean, things are going to be scary for Big Ten opponents going forward because he was pretty great this year. Next one. It's a fun one. Biggest surprise of the year. And, well, we didn't really come to an agreement on this one, and that's why we have to bring in our third party, Megan. Our two options for biggest surprise, John Murphy. Or AJ Lee.
0: Can I can I throw in a third option here? Go for it. I think our third, maybe biggest surprise, at least as a Maryland Baseball Network staff, was Joe Catapano stepping into a broadcast. <laughs> oh yes. Role. I think it's important. The to expectations shout out Joe here. for Joe
1: were so low coming into the <laughs> they year. They were
0: so low, and for him to step into a broadcast role the way he did, he might be the newcomer of the year for the Maryland Baseball Network staff, or at least the biggest surprise of the year for the MBN staff.
1: I think we've completely lost Megan though. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Megan. Let's let's bring you in here. The choices that. That we put together, we were thinking A.J. Lee, we were thinking John Murphy. Couldn't really decide because, well, they both do different things and had different expectations coming into the season.
2: So they both had an incredible year. A.J. really stepped up to the plate over at third base. But if you look at the beginning of the season, A.J. was expected to be your third baseman. He was expected to go out there every day and play third base. And his offensive year was a huge surprise, as he did do incredible. But John Murphy was not expected to end up that – the season that he ended up having. He ended up playing a huge role in both um, the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA regional, um, and without him, I don't think we would have been as close as we were in any of those games.
0: Well, I think that the kind of line that we keep coming back to is, where would Maryland have been without X? And I think without A.J. Lee, you try and figure out, okay, who would have played third base? Could Bran of Gum have shifted over to the other side of the infield? They tried that in one game against Richmond, didn't really work out I think with A.J. Lee, the expectation for him coming into this season was that he was going to be really solid defensively and you would take a season where A.J. Lee hit maybe 240, 250. You didn't really care necessarily what kind of offense you gave him as long as he wasn't going out and striking out three times a game. Like you said, Megan, with John Murphy, the expectations for him were relatively non-existent. He was a guy who was essentially a failed midweek starter last season, didn't have a role in the bullpen or as a midweek starter this year, until the midweek starting pitching faltered. The bullpen situation opened up a little bit. He ended up pitching 31 and two-thirds inning this season and pitched to a 1.71 ERA, and like you said, was simply sensational in the postseason. Justin, could we name co surprises of the year?
1: I mean, we can if you want to. I have to say I'm on Megan's side with this one just because we're not choosing MVP here, so I don't know if the where would Maryland be blank conversation is quite apt for this one. But when you have starting third baseman coming into the year versus a guy who didn't travel with the team at the beginning of the year, I mean, to get what Maryland got from John Murphy, it was a shock to many. And maybe had this happened last year when he had some pretty high expectations coming out of Gloucester Catholic, setting the wins record there after Mike Schwarren pitched there and then pitched here at Maryland, maybe it would have been expected more. But after what happened last year, you said it, I mean... People didn't expect much from Murphy, and his performance in these two postseason appearances, or I guess three of them, in the Big Ten tournament he had two, in the NCAA tournament he had one. John was outstanding, and what he did against West Virginia, coming into the game with the bases loaded and nobody out, and striking out three consecutive batters, I mean, Marty Costa said it. I mean, it gives you chills. It was amazing, and we talked about this. We came to expect it from Murphy. I mean, once <laughs> just st- a little bit. Once he struck out that first batter, I was pretty confident he would strike <laughs> out the next two.
0: We we were talking about it up in the booth. Well, as long as I hold on to some shred of executive action. For the Maryland Baseball Network, for whatever last week we have. Well, I'm going I don't know. To, I don't know about this. I'm going to name. I'm going to name Co-Surprises of the Year: AJ hold Lee on, and John Hold on, Murphy. hold on.
1: <laughs> I was under the impression that as soon as the last game ended, I became director.
2: I think Justin's the captain now.
0: Justin, we'll, we'll have the transfer of power later on in the podcast. But as of right now, <laughs> I'm still I'm still guiding the ship. I bet all of you listening thought that you were done with me, that you didn't have to hear my voice anymore. That's not so. We had one more podcast left to record, and then you know I'll part ways and, and give the, turn turn the reins over to Justin and Chris. But for right now, I'm still very much in control. I've got the laptop on my on my lap. I've got the board in front of me, and well, you know, wait your turn, Justin. It'll okay. it'll only be a few more days. I'll Don't pu- worry. I'll pump the brakes on that one. <laughs> I mean- All right. So moving on, we have our moment. Of the year, and Justin, well, you were front and center for this one.
1: Yes, it has to be the back-to-back home runs in the ninth inning off of Sal Biasi from Zach Jankarski and Brandon Gum on back-to-back pitches. If you remember, the call goes pitch to gum, <laughs> swinging a fly ball <laughs> deep left. We're w- going home. We are <laughs> we going, are going home. home. I know you've heard it a million times. It's at the back end of our broadcast open. How could you not? I mean, that was the most exciting baseball game I've ever called in my life. it was just a quick turn of events. I mean, Sal Biasi was one-hitting Maryland into the ninth inning in that game, and Brian Schaefer had pitched amazing that night. That would have been a really bad loss for the Terps, RPI-wise, wasting a good start also. But then all of a sudden on back-to-back pitches, Jan Karski puts one out, Gum sends us all back to our homes, and the Terps have a win. So I have to say that was moment of the year.
0: Yeah, and two guys who not necessarily known for their home run prowess also, you know, that, that kind of game reminded me of the game two years ago when Maryland was no hit through nine and a third innings and then came back to walk off against Ohio State. And I think it's only fitting that the moment of this year, that ball game, Maryland's only walk off of this year.
2: Sitting in the dugout for that game, I remember thinking, we just need to get Marty up to bat. He was batting third that game. I was like, if we can just get Jankarski and Gum to get on base, then Marty can take this thing away. And Jankarski and Gum decided to just get the job done themselves.
0: Made for some of the best images, the pictures after the game of the hugs between Gum, Jankarski, the rest of the team. Those are ones that you look back on this season and you'll never forget.
1: And I remember talking to Brian Schaefer the next day and he said, we actually didn't even see Brandon Gum's home run because the guys were still, you know, <laughs> congratulating right. yeah, Jan- Jankarski for his. Next one we have win of the year for the Terps. So we kind of talked about that same Penn State game as the win of the year, but when it comes down to it, it was kind of just a win over the last place team in the league. So it came down to most impressive win of the year, most important win of the year, and the agreement we came to was the win over Nebraska in the Big Ten tournament, which we don't know, but could have been the game that earned the Terps a spot in the NCAA tournament, beating the regular season champs.
0: Now, because Maryland was not among the last four into the field of 64, I think it was safe to conclude going into the NCAA tournament that there wasn't necessarily one game of that Big Ten tournament that swayed the committee in either direction on Maryland. The Terps seemed pretty safe from the committee's point of view, but it was that game against Nebraska that made the Turbs feel a little bit more comfortable about their chances going into the NCAA tournament. Like you said, knocking off the top-seeded Nebraska team. Tyler Blom had a great start against the Cornhuskers. Didn't go very long, but he struck out a career-high 10 batters. It was a little bit of revenge of the series loss that happened in Lincoln earlier this season, and if you look back on the year, you know, not a ton of marquee wins you know, maybe Maryland's best win over a top team, so to speak, was against NC State early on in the season, but that was when the Wolfpack was really, really struggling. Wolfpack now in the NCAA tournament and playing well. But the marquee win of the season probably was that game against Nebraska. I think you could also make an argument for the game against UMBC in the NCAA regional. Not necessarily a big win overall, a 16-2 to ball game that just prolonged Maryland's season one game longer but it did ensure a third NCAA tournament win in the last three years, which is big for a program.
1: I think the other two you could throw in there were the Friday night matchups between Oliver Jasky of Michigan and Brian Schaefer that the Terps won, and then the Michigan State-Maryland game when Alex Troop came in with the league-leading ERA, and the Terps just went nuts. Dominated Troop, knocked him out of the game very early, And I thought those were two really impressive wins. When it comes down to it, I think Nebraska is still the answer. But while there weren't, you know, wins over top five teams, top ten teams in the country, there were some impressive games against individual performers, Jasky and Troop, two really solid left-handers in the Big Ten.
0: I think you can kind of look at this Maryland season and say, well, not necessarily there weren't marquee wins or top five wins, top ten wins like you said. The entire body of work that Maryland put together was really – you know, John Sheff always talks about wanting to have a consistent team, a consistent program, and I think Maryland this season was a lot more consistent than inconsistent, and ultimately that's why they were so, so so successful.
1: Yeah, we talked about it a lot on this podcast, about how Maryland had kind of done exactly what it should all year, beat the teams they should beat, then the games that on paper they weren't the better team they lost. And that was enough to get them into the NCAA tournament, win a game in the tournament. Uh, that series at LSU would have been great if they could have taken a game, would have been great if they could have won that game against Louisville and Clearwater. It didn't happen, but I think for the most part, all year long, Maryland took care of business. So now our
0: performance of the year, and like game of the year or win of the year, there were a lot of different, I guess you could say, choices for this one, but I think the one that we settled on also came from that Penn State series, but it was the Sunday game, and it was A.J. Lee who really just had the best game of his career, in that ballgame going four for four with five RBIs and four runs scored against Penn State in a 15-2 to two win for Maryland.
1: Yeah, that was an impressive win for Maryland. I remember calling that game, and Justin Hagenman, the starter for Penn State, didn't make it out of the fourth inning and threw 115, 118 pitches, something like that. And A.J. Lee was one of the big reasons why. Marty Costas had a big day that that afternoon as well. But I just looked at this, and you could have said the Kevin Smith 2 were on two home run performance against UMBC there were some other you could have thrown in there but I just remember watching AJ Lee that day and saying oh my goodness this guy is absolutely on fire Um, and
0: then he did it again against William and Mary the very next
1: game right I mean that was that was the start
0: of really AJ Lee's emergence as an offensive superstar
1: right and you've heard me say it on the air I mean it's your favorite line I mean for a long time Kid was hot.
0: Kid kid was hot. It was a torrid month of April for A.J. Lee. He hit 400 in that month, then started the month of May on a 14-game hitting streak. Really all kick-started by the series down in Rutgers, but then continued with the series against Penn State. So A.J. Lee gets our performance
1: of the season. In our final superlative, the funniest moment of the year. And this was a tough one to choose because, look, this team was pretty crazy. This team was hilarious. It really was. They are absolute goons. I think that's a perfect word you use there. Um, So funniest moment of the year, I think, turned into more than one moment. But you said the Big Ten tournament shenanigans in the dugout that we've discussed at length. Uh, Megan and I had our own conference. We went with your first pitch on senior (laughs) day. And and I'd love to hear Megan's analysis from the dugout. I wasn't actually there. I just saw the video. Um, But, Megan, I mean, when Jake threw that pitch, was there an, oh, no, that's not getting there.
2: Well, I personally also had a first pitch this season, so I cannot say much on that ground because mine did also bounce. Um, so I'm going to defend that. Jake here because of Thank my you, Megan. first pitch I thought myself. we were on the
1: same <laughs> team here, Megan.
0: You know, I was in the dugout before this first pitch, and I asked Brian Schaefer for some advice, and all he said was don't bounce it. I asked Chef for some advice. He said, you know, Jake, no one's going to remember whether or not you go to the top of the mound or you're in front of it as long as you throw a strike. So go in front of the mound. I didn't listen. I went to the top of the mound, and then I bounced it in the left-handed batter's box. And, well, that's what everyone seems to remember about it. Either way, great experience. I
2: went in front of the mound and also bounced it, so we'll <laughs> give Jake the cake here. I, I
1: think everyone should know that Jake and I played catch last week in Bloomington, and your long toss was not unimpressive.
0: Thank you very much. That that means a lot coming from you. We were thrown about... What, 200 feet? Something like that. Something like that. It was fun. We
1: should get out and, you know, really test the arm out a little bit more. That that sounds like a fun idea. But back to <laughs> back to somewhat seriousness about our funniest none moment of, of the this, year. None of
0: this part of this conversation is serious. It's all about the shenanigans, especially the ones in the Big Ten tournament, like you mentioned. I mean, the stuff that this dugout came up with, led by Pat Heisel, Kevin Bionic in there as well. My personal favorite was Mike Racino with the football-style headset made out of Gatorade cups and medical tape with a football play chart with things like spider 2y banana harambe <laughs> and, and other ridiculous like notions on this piece of cardboard in the middle of a big 10 tournament game I mean the creativity off the charts
2: I remember sitting in the dugout for the big 10 tournament I sit in the dugout for most games and they just crack me up all the time but In the middle of the inning, Patty comes running up to me. We have a whiteboard where we keep some stats. And he goes, Megan, I need the whiteboard. I need it for Chef's interview. And he grabs it. And all I told him was, be appropriate. We're on national (laughs) television. He ran through all the things he was going to write, told me that it was all appropriate. They're just trying to get Scott Van Pelt to tweet at them. And and it worked. It succeeded.
0: And it worked. Let's go to (laughs) Bent's. Maybe that's where I'll be in a couple days. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like a bad idea. No,
1: not terrible It's been at all. a long two weeks. It's been a long but fun two weeks. Very fun. Um, I think my favorite has to be Chef coming out of the That
0: bathroom. one, I think, takes the cake because if you know Chef and you know the team, even if you don't, just from the outside looking in, the the notion of what they did with Chef and the bathroom, I'll let, I'll let you break it down.
1: Well, I mean, the teams huddled around the dugout bathroom, right? And Chef's in there. I don't know how long it was, but
2: <laughs> and granted, the inning had already started at this point. There's people already. Yes, rolling. they were Chef,
1: <laughs> but Chef always has
0: you know a bathroom break or two during the game.
1: <laughs> Thanks for letting us know. Do you watch
2: him do
0: that <laughs> during the game? <laughs> well, if if you're in Bob Turtlesman Stadium, you see him come in from from the bullpen every now and again. There's a dugout bathroom for a reason. And in this particular instance, the team was waiting for Chef to emerge from the bathroom. But
1: the great part is you see him open the door and he kind of starts smirking a little bit. (laughs) And then just the round of applause for him coming out (laughs) of that bathroom. I mean, that must have made him feel good. I I, I should think (laughs) so. Would you want a round of applause when you finish in the bathroom? I
0: I don't know if we need to go into the details (laughs) there. (laughs) Either way, it was absolutely hilarious. And I think all of these encompass our funniest moments of the season.
1: And now, before we wrap up our... First segment, it would be not a great thing if we sent you out in your podcast, your final podcast, without one fair foul.
0: I think we need to have a fair foul, and and yes, this will be my my final podcast. Although I reserve the right to be a guest on future podcasts, Ooh. should you want to have Ooh. me on the air, that's up to you. Once I give you the reins of the Maryland Baseball Network,
1: well, I'll present this to you and look, fair foul has come a long way. It started, and we actually learned. We and we're explaining this for you, the listeners, um, and Megan, who we found out tonight is not a listener, which is very disappointing. <laughs> oh, Maril, Maril, Maril you really did, called her out there. Did, yeah, that's Megan, did, Megan didn't even know we had a podcast. <laughs> that's
2: false. <laughs> but I knew about the pod po- podcast.
1: <laughs> well, this this segment started as nothing. It didn't have a name. It was just kind of presenting. Blanket statements.
0: It was. It wasn't. It wasn't. It like segment to be named later or something yes. like that.
1: Yes. And then it became work in progress. Work in progress. And then on the way home from the bank, when you made me dress up that one day. That was a fun day. Yes. Jake made me. I.
0: I basically told Justin that when we went to the bank to take care of some of the Maryland Baseball Network's financial things, that he had to wear a shirt and tie because he needed to look presentable. Which, of course, if you've ever been to the bank, you know is completely false. <laughs> but Justin believed me, so he showed up wearing a shirt and tie.
2: I would believe you, too. I, I happen to have serious. been coming from
0: work, so I was wearing a shirt and khaki. So it didn't look terribly out of place. It was just kind of funny. But that's a bit of an aside. Basically, the Jake name Farrah just it was, it was an epiphany in the car on the way back. And it's been Fair or foul ever since. So... Our final fair or foul, I present it to you, Justin, and to you, Megan. Maryland's season was a success. Fair or foul?
2: I would say fair. I say if you take all the stats from this season where we ended and moved it to the beginning of the season, back in February, if you told us this is how your season would end, would you be happy with it? And I would say yes. Um, if you said we had Big Ten Pitcher of the Year, Big Ten Freshman of the Year, went to an NCA regional, all those things are huge milestones in a program. And I don't think you can argue with the success of a season based on those things.
1: You know, I was actually going to say foul. but <laughs> <laughs> Megan <laughs> makes a great point <laughs> here. I think I have to say fair now. I mean, the reason I was going to say foul was that my answer was more indifferent. Like, if you told me before the season Maryland would come in fourth in the Big Ten, make it to the Big Ten semifinals, and then make a regional and win one game, I would say it's probably what I expect. Probably what it's going to be. But they end up winning the Big Ten Pitcher of the Year, Big Ten Freshman of the Year. Marty Costas makes first team. A.J. Lee makes third team. And while baseball is not an individual game, as Megan said, you can't argue with the individual awards Maryland got this year. So overall, I I would agree. If at the beginning of the year you said – Maryland was going to have this season 38-23, and 20-3 23, 23, at home. Which like 10, is incredible. Right. I mean, it was 20-1 and one until the last week, or 19-1 and one going into the last weekend of the season. So, I agree. I say fair statement.
0: Now, I'm going to say it's a fair statement as well for a couple of different reasons. For me, I, I agree with Megan. The expectations coming into this season, you know, you would say that you you finish where you finish here. You're very happy with it. And to your point, Justin, Also, the expectation this year was to make the NCAA tournament. But I think as the season progressed, it became more and more clear that making the NCAA tournament, and this is true really of, I think, any college baseball season, is way more difficult than you think it is before the season begins, especially when you get to Championship Sunday of the conference tournaments and there are all these stolen bids, and there's only so many at-large bids to go around, and Maryland's resume still strong enough to get into the NCAA tournament. And for a program really any program, to be in the NCAA tournament in three of the last four years, especially one like the Terps that hadn't been to the NCAA tournament prior to 2014 in 43 years, since 1971, to build that consistency and that expectation, go back to that word, that expectation to be in the NCAA tournament, well, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. So I think it'd be tough to look at this season in any other way than something of a success.
2: And we may have finished fourth um, in the Big Ten, finishing 15-9, and nine, but the Big Ten championship came down to the final weekend. We really didn't know until that final Friday and Saturday who the Big Ten champion was going to be. So you really saw how close the games were, and the Terps did beat the number one seed in Nebraska in the Big Ten tournament.
0: It was also separated by only three or four games heading to the Big Ten tournament, a lot of jockeying for seeding, and, well, Right now, one of the teams left in the NCAA tournament is the Iowa Hawkeyes, who are the four seed or the five seed in the Big Ten tournament, a four seed in the NCAA tournament. The Big Ten was a lot stronger than people gave the conference credit for this year. Five bids, that's not a common thing unless you're the ACC or the SEC. So a successful season for the Big Ten, a successful season for Maryland baseball. So that'll wrap things up for our first segment on the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. But first, a final thought from Megan.
2: So, Just, we want to thank Jake for all that he's done because he really has been incredible. You're going to make and me cry on the air Without here? him and without Maryland Baseball Network, um, my parents, my mom, all the baseball parents would not know what to do on the weekends when the Terps are playing. So, thank you.
0: Uh, I mean, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do on the weekends when the Terps are playing too. <laughs> Listen to Justin. I'll be, I'll be tuning in to Justin and Connor and, and the rest of the Maryland Baseball Network broadcasters. You can, you can bet on that. Uh, but now we turn things over to our interview. With Frankie Polari, we talked to Frankie about the MLB draft. That's coming up next Monday, June 12th. A number of the Terps are draft eligible and should be selected. Kevin Smith, Brian Schaefer among them. And while we talked to Frankie about where these Maryland Terrapins could be drafted, the next wave of pro Terps coming along. So thanks to Megan for joining us on this segment, and thank, thank you for your kind words. They mean a lot. And now our interview with Frankie Polari from D1 Baseball. Happy to be joined now on the Maryland Baseball Network podcast by Frankie Polari. He's a national writer for D1Baseball.com, focusing on the Major League Draft. Frankie, we could see some Terps taken near the top few rounds, somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the end, too. There's a number of guys who are getting, you know, quite a bit of notice from scouts.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting crop. I mean, coming in, you, you know, I think a lot of people had high expectations for guys like Kevin Smith, and it looked like maybe he was going to be a first rounder and there'd be some guys at the top. Obviously, some of those guys have slipped back a little bit. Smith hasn't had quite the spring people expected. But at the same time, I think you're going to see plenty of Terps go fairly early here. And, and, you know, the stock is still pretty solid.
0: Well, let's start with those big name guys, namely Kevin Smith and Brian Schaefer. And we'll start with Smith, who you got to see a lot on the Cape this past summer. He really opened a ton of eyes. He was your breakout. he was D1 Baseball's breakout prospect coming into this season. The power numbers have been there. The
3: average, maybe not. What's kind of the word around him heading into June? You know, I think a lot of people, you know, they want to see the numbers and he's not, you know, because the numbers have been a little bit down. Yes, he's probably going to be pushed out of the first round. But at the same time, it's hard to erase what he did over the summer. And I've seen a lot of guys over the years have good summers on the Cape, struggle in the spring and still retain their draft stock fairly well. I think I think we're going to see that with Smith a little bit. I think he's got a good chance somewhere in those compensation rounds or in the second round. I think we're going to see him go off the board because you look at what he can do up the middle and defensively combined with his power, I think you're going to see a lot of teams that are more than willing to be patient and work out some of the other issues like the swing and miss and see what you can get out of him because that profile is still very rare, type, that type of power bat up the middle of the field.
0: Just as a blanket question, do evaluators put more stock on what guys do over the summer specifically in the Cape than maybe they would the following spring?
3: I think, I think specifically the Cape, if a guy can perform like that, you see a guy who's a 300 hitter and puts up numbers there, it sticks in scouts minds quite a bit. You know, I think, you know, it's different if a guy, you know, is going back to the sec or something, you know, obviously those numbers are, are very important. And if they drop off drastically, sure, that's going to be a little bit of a worry, but I think that's a great fallback to have in your back pocket as a draft prospect when you have that on your resume, because, We've seen it time and time again. Guys can, you know, struggle in the spring and still maintain pretty well if they have a good summer in their pocket. One of the comparisons that I've heard a couple
0: times now with Kevin Smith has been Zach Kozard. Do you think that's apt?
3: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, physically, with, you know, I th- I think Kevin's got more power, but I could see the defensive profile. I can see the athleticism. I've heard that once or twice and I think it I think it makes a lot of sense. So moving on from
0: Smith, and perhaps we'll get back to him later, and focusing now on Brian Schaefer, who's really the other kind of high-profile guy that could go in the earlier rounds from Maryland. He's a guy who's leading the Big Ten in ERA innings pitched. He's put together now back-to-back really strong seasons. What's the conversation around him?
3: Yeah, I think he's a guy that kind of fits right in that third to fifth round range. It's, it's going to be interesting to see exactly where he's valued because the command is outstanding. I mean, there are not many guys you're going to put above Schaefer in terms of command and feel for pitching. And he shouldn't be discounted in terms of stuff either. I mean, I've seen him up to 93 miles an hour. He's got good life. The the slider is a legitimate pitch that plays at the next level. So I think he's going to be somewhere third, fourth, fifth round. I think that's a good spot for him. And, you know, if not, if he does fall out of that range, you know, he, he has, he has options, but I think, I think someone's got to jump up and take him because he's, He's a very easy to project type of guy. I don't think there's going to be a lot of surprises if you're a pro team.
0: Yeah, his velocity was actually sitting pretty consistently at 94 a couple weeks ago out in Champaign into the eighth inning, which was a really cool thing to see for him. The big question that I have about Schaefer you know, there are a lot of big name right handed college pitchers in this draft. Alex Spieto, Kyle Wright. You know, where does he fit
3: among those guys? I mean, I think he's, in terms of pure stuff, he's a tick and a tier below those guys, but where he has a lot of them beaten, you know, is that command. I mean, I think, and I think, like you said, the stuff has held up pretty well this spring. So that bodes well for him. He's behind those guys, obviously, but in terms of polish and command and ability to locate his pitches, he stacks up as well as anybody. The, the stuff is not quite up to the, you know, the Kyle Wrights and the the and the Houks of the world, but you know, in a in a big matchup, it, I think you stack them up just to get about against anybody.
0: With Kevin Smith and Brian Schaefer, I think it's safe to say those are the two guys who would be most likely for Maryland to go within the top five rounds. Is there anything that the two of them can do over the next month or so that would push them up the draft board?
3: I think specifically Smith. I think I think Schaefer is consistent enough where people have a pretty good idea in their head of of what he is. but Smith, if he can go out, and really cut down on the strikeouts and continue to hit for power. If people can see, you know, the strikeouts come down, a lot of contact, I think people are looking for an excuse to kind of run him up the boards because we know how much scouts liked him coming into the spring, and if he could, if he can get hot at the right time, I could see him easily making up some of the ground that maybe he's lost this spring.
0: Do you think that for him expectations might have been too high entering this spring?
3: It could be, because if you because if you do look at the track record, it's not far off from what we've seen from him. It's not, you know, the Cape was an uptick in terms of in terms of average and and consistency and consistency offensively. So, yeah, it's probable that we read into it maybe maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit too much. But at the same time, I I think it shows that it's in there. I mean, it's because it's the potentials in there. The scouts have seen it. And usually the saying among scouts is if we see it once, you know, we know we can tap into it again. Now moving into,
0: I guess, kind of the later, you know, top 10 rounds, maybe even the, the teen rounds, a guy like Ryan Selmer who changed a lot over the summer in Wareham and really started to come on strong at the end of the summer and has performed well as Maryland's pretty much relief ace the last couple of seasons, a big frame at six foot eight, a guy who projects well down the line. Where do you think he fits in?
3: I think that's a great name to bring up. I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, if you look at the size and you look at, you know, low nineties with, with heavy life, and this is what teams, this is what teams look for. You know, this is, you know, I think he's got still more velocity to come. He works down in the zone, his downhill plane, you know, from his angle, that's going to be really difficult no matter what, what type of hitter he's facing. So I think that's definitely a sleeper. I'm curious to see kind of where he fits in. I think, you might see someone fifth, sixth, seventh round, you know, make a run at him, but that's that's the type of guy that could sneak up on some people. I think that's that might be kind of the sleeper to watch on the team. I think you have that nailed. Now with his stuff, I
0: mean, the, the way his arm angle is, it's not as over the top as you might expect for a guy who's six foot eight. Is that something that teams see as a positive or a negative?
3: Well, I think it, if it would be different if it, if it wasn't working for him, but I think he generates he generates enough movement in life where I don't think you're going to see too many teams view it as a negative. I think you might have some that say, you know, we want a 6'8 guy to be over the top and get that angle, but he's pretty consistent getting on top of the ball, and I think you have to like the movement he generates, and I think for now you probably, you probably take that as a positive. If you had to peg
0: him, I guess, in a, in a certain round, what would be your best guess?
3: I would take him if it were me, and based on kind of what I sense and historically, guys like him go. I think fifth to sixth, maybe seventh round. I think that's a good spot for him because I think you're getting you're getting a nice value, a guy who can move quickly in the bullpen, move up and advance quickly. I think that's a I think that's a nice spot to be able to get him in. I could see him going a little bit lower, but I like him quite a bit. I think that's a, I think that's a nice, reasonable spot to get a big, you know, power arm like that.
0: So there's a potential really from what you're saying that there could be 3 Maryland guys to go in the top 5 rounds.
3: Yes, I think it's that's that's your that's your better case scenario, but yeah, I think it's a real possibility. Taking a look at some of Maryland's
0: other relievers, there's a couple of I think really interesting cases kind of along the same vein as Ryan Selmer. But to start off, Jared Price, a fifth-year senior, a guy who was drafted out of high school, had kind of battled injuries throughout his Maryland career, but this year pitched the most, pitched, in fact, more than they did each the last two years, and has showcased a pretty heavy fastball and, and a big power curve,
3: too. Is he going to get some attention? I think he will, because, I mean, he's definitely, he's pitched on the big stage. I mean, guys have seen him out on the Cape. He's pitched in some important important matchups. And I think, you know, people know what what he's capable of, and it's just a matter of, how how long he can string it together how long he can stay healthy i mean i think we know he's got power stuff he can miss bats he's got a good breaking ball exactly where someone wants to take a gamble on someone like him i think honestly if if he gets hot at the right time and makes the right impression he could go somewhere inside the top 10 rounds but i think it's probably more realistic to think 11th to 15th round range is you know a guy like him with limited innings he's seen, that's probably where someone would want to take the chance. Do you think that
0: injury history and the fact that he's a fifth-year senior plays into it?
3: I think it definitely does. I mean, because, you know, scouts are looking for track record and kind of, you know, how durable are these guys going to be? Think about the commodity that pitching is now. Guys that can guys that can consistently stay on the mound and make appearance after appearance, that comes with a lot of value. So I think until, until teams are more convinced that, you know, this guy can go out and take the ball day in and day out, they're going to be a little bit skeptical. They're going to like the stuff and still roll the dice on it, but it definitely plays into it.
0: Now, someone similar to Jared Price in terms of the arsenal is a guy like Mike Racino, who was taken in the later rounds of last year's draft by the San Francisco Giants, elected to come back this year, tossed 16 and two-thirds innings. The strikeouts have been there. Is he going to go kind of in the exact same spot as last year or maybe move up a little bit?
3: It's going to be interesting. I think a guy like him, if you line it up with his stuff, I think, my logic tells me that somewhere eighth to 12th round range should be where he goes. I mean, you, you wanted the numbers to be better, more consistently to be there. But when you start getting down in that range, it's going to come down to teams, you know, talking to their pitching coordinators, talking to their guys who know pitching in the organization and say, Hey, this guy's got good stuff. What can we do with him? We can get him on the right track and the stuff is still showing up. So whenever, whenever the, whenever you have an arm like that, you're still going to get a real good chance and I think you know hopefully for his sake he can pitch some some very quality innings down the stretch and get on a little bit of a run and build his stock but yeah I think that eighth to twelfth round range seems reasonable for him
0: do you think that the expectations were him being named the best senior prospect in the nation best prospect
3: in the Cal League? do you think that those might have been lofty I think a little bit because I think at the beginning of the year everyone's kind of looking for okay who is that best unsigned, best unsigned junior from last year, who's the guy coming into this year. And sometimes it's just hard to pinpoint that it's one of those things where guys sign or don't sign for different reasons. And we don't know until the spring starts and you know how that's really going to shake out. I mean, yeah, I think, I think with a lot, I think it just shows that that those senior class guys in general are really tough to, they're tough to sort out. And, you know, if you look back at year after year, it's, we kind of don't know until a little bit into the season who those guys are going to be for pitchers like him,
0: a guy who came in as an infielder and then transitioned to the mound. Do scouts look at that as a positive? They can maybe mold a guy a little bit more, or do they see that as a drawback?
3: I think it's definitely a positive because if you're look if you're trying to talk yourself into him, if you're a scout or if you're in that room, trying to make a pitch for him to draft him, you're going to say, hey, this guy has in the grand scheme of things, limited pitching experience. We can get in there and, and change some things. He has a relatively fresh arm, is not you know, he's not a guy that's pitched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of innings. So I think it's definitely a positive. I, I it would be it'd be hard to see it as much more, you know. You could you could spin it as a negative, but I, I think it's very positive for the most part.
0: Now maybe one of the most curious cases, at least from my perspective on the entire roster, is another guy who transitioned from the field to the mound. Jamal Wade, he's pitched just sixteen in the third innings in his entire career, but he struck out twenty-seven guys. In 64 total at bats, and he's holding opponents to a 203 batting average. He's a guy that you know you see come on the mound, and the radar guns kind of pop up behind home plate. And I'm really curious to see where he ends up as a junior.
3: Yeah, he's that's a tough case. I mean, I usually usually what happens with a guy like that, unless unless he really convinces someone at the right moment, I see him as a guy who comes back and continues to build off what he's done this year, and and maybe next year he kind of jumps up and. Becomes that top five to seven round type of guy, but I think for the most part scouts will be willing to kind of wait back, see where this goes for him, and see how he develops. Especially if he can get out and pitch in the summer and get more innings under his belt, I think that's that's that tends to be where these cases go. But it's you never know if he, if he if he pitches in front of the right person right coming down to draft time, he could make he could change some minds. But I think in general with that with those few innings, I think people are going to want to see him how he how he how he fares when he gets more innings under his belt.
0: What do you think this ceiling is for him in terms of, you know, what round he could possibly go in?
3: I think some teams start taking gambles like that probably 10th to 12th round range. I think that's probably the earliest. I could be I could be very wrong. Once in a while, especially the way the draft is structured now, you see someone jump up 6th to 10th round with a name that really surprises people, but my guess with such with limited pitching experience Look, you know, somewhere twelfth, thirteenth, fifteenth round. Someone rolls the dice, and if I, you know, if I were in his position, you you get drafted there. That's all well and good, but it it would just show that another year and another year of pitching would probably up his stock even further.
0: With him, is there a guy that comes to mind that was kind of a similar situation to his over the last couple of years?
3: Uh, I'm not sure. There's a very similar one in terms of guys that converted this this late to pitching. I mean, I, I'd have to look. I mean, there there are definitely conversion cases like it in recent memory, but off the top of my head I can't think of one that happens, you know, you hear of guys getting to college and converting to the mound, but I I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of one that's a, that actually happened, you know, his draft year essentially. Like you said, only those 16 innings under his belt.
0: Right. I mean, he, he pretty much became a pitcher over the summer in the NECBL and then just kind of continued doing it in the fall and now in the spring. It's It's been really fascinating to watch the, prog- the progress.
3: Yeah, it's a, that's a very rare transition. you got to give him a lot of credit, too, because it's hard to make that transition on the fly. It's hard to make that transition in general, let alone when you're right in the middle of your college career.
0: So we've talked a lot about the Maryland pitching staff. Moving over to the offensive side of things, the first guy that is another interesting case, and I think there are a lot of them with this Maryland team, is a guy like Marty Costas, who's a sophomore, but he's a draft-eligible sophomore. Last year, led the team in home runs. This year, has nine home runs, and is leading the team in RBIs. He's also leading the team in average, and has played a really solid outfield defensively. I mean, what are, what are prospects like as draft-eligible sophomores in general?
3: You know, I think if you want a great example of where this is probably headed and and if you're a draft eligible sophomore, how you should think? Look at Brent Rooker at Mississippi State this year. Last year he had the opportunity; he could have very well signed, played professionally after last year. Went back this year as a as a as a redshirt junior, and he is. And I think everybody knows in the college baseball world, having a monster year and pushing himself and possibly into the first round picture. So I think now especially i think a lot of these guys and, there, and there's a few good ones around the country marty costas is one of them jake mangums and other guys who were eligible this year who could easily go out and sign but i think there's a lot of upside to going out and get, especially the way well, the way costas is hit we know what kind of numbers he's going to put up i mean when i talk to coaches around the country his name comes up a lot as one of the best pure hitters out there i think he can only build his stock further i'm i'm sure he's getting a lot of calls and a lot of attention but I think, you know, if he could, if he were to come back next year, he could really move himself up in the draft boards. Yeah,
0: the coaches here rave about his plate discipline. And, well, maybe something else that he could have in common with Brent Rooker, Marty Costas is set to go play up in Brewster this summer, along with Nick Dunn, who's going to return for his second year. So maybe Marty takes that jump from the Whitecaps to the stratosphere like Rooker has.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's the right route. I mean, you see guys come out of there better hitters for it. And I think, you know, He's only going to get better. I think. I think everybody's very confident in what he can do at the plate. And the more scouts get to see it, the more convinced they're going to be. So I think, in terms of you know, the right path for him, I, I think it's a lot of upside for him to just continue racking up numbers.
0: So as a sophomore, putting up the numbers that he has, do you see him maybe as as a mid to late
3: round guy because of his age? Probably, because it's all going to depend essentially on when he talks to these teams what he tells them you know it's going to depend on how sign up how just how signable that teams think he is and i would say most likely most most draft elders sophomores are going to use that leverage and and tell them and tell teams that they're going to likely come back to school so with that in mind i think no one's probably going to take a, a real gamble with a with a top 10 with a top 10 round pick and we'll see him some point down the line maybe Maybe, maybe 15 to 20, only because, you know, because of the signability issues. On talent, he would be obviously significantly higher, and I think we'll see that happen next year.
0: Now another draft-eligible outfielder for Maryland is Zach Jankarski, who's probably arguably been Maryland's hottest hitter over the last month and a half or so. He's putting up career numbers, having a breakout season, hitting three twenty four, and on base percentage of four twenty six. He's stolen nearly 20 bases, showed a little bit of power also. A guy who also had an all-star summer in the NECBL, and this is really kind of his first year as a consistent starter for Maryland. So where do guys like Zach Jankarski fall, you know, when the rest of the dominoes do?
3: I think he'll, someone will kind of similar for different reasons, obviously it's kind of similar situation to Costas where I think probably anywhere 15, 20, 25, only because like you said, it's sort of, a, it is a limited track record. And I think coming back as a, coming back as a, as a senior is not a negative thing. And I think people, people will take sort of a let's wait and see type of approach on a guy like him and see what he does in the summer and see if he repeats it. And then seniors do really well in the draft. Now you you look around the fourth, fifth, sixth round of the draft this year, you will see a run on some really quality seniors. So I think if you're looking at it as a draft prospect and you're unsure of your stock as a junior, you got to look around and see how well some of these polished seniors do by coming back. So I think that that could be that could be a situation that Jen Karsky falls into. Well,
0: on the subject of seniors, there's a graduate transfer senior and a and a true senior on Maryland's roster, both draft eligible. Brandon Gum, who came over from George Mason and is a career 300 hitter at the college level. And then Nick Sieri, who had a breakout summer in the Cape Cod League two years ago, was drafted out of high school. Also, are these guys that that could be taken with some flyers in the late rounds?
3: Flyers, yes. I mean, especially Sierri, because you know you know, and obviously Gum's got the numbers, so someone will take a run at him, you know, somewhere, more you know twenty something round, something like that. But Sierra will be interesting because people have seen him do it. you know, it's been there before we've seen him hit at a high level. so someone will take a before the draft is over, someone will take a run at him just because the potential is the potential is obviously in there. and we always see that where, on draft day, someone will, say, someone will say, hey, at some point, this guy produced, and we think we can mine it out of him again. So I think Sierra is a classic example of that. So I'm going to throw
0: a couple of other draft-eligible names at you, guys who might fit into that flyer category. And you know, if you have any thoughts on them, I'm just curious to hear what you think. Guys like Justin Morris, Kevin Biondick, uh, Taylor Bloom. I mean, where, where could these guys end up? Taylor Styles is another one. He's a graduating senior and a left-hander where could these guys end
3: up i think most of them are flyer guys bloom bloom is interesting because i mean we've seen him we've seen him perform better than he has this year and i think again probably a guy that can come back as a senior but i think he's among that group he's the name that kind of intrigues me the most morris is interesting too but bloom bloom would be the one that i'd be curious to see if someone tries to get him signed somewhere in those somewhere in those mid to late rounds cuz because he is it, you know. Because he is so interesting, and he's had and he's had that track record of success. And at, in those later rounds, that's kind of what you're looking for. You're trying, you're trying to, as a team, combine some flyers and some upside guys with some guys that you've seen put up numbers and, and establish a resume. So I, Bloom would intrigue me in that regard.
0: Well, the thing about Bloom, and this is kind of a general question: How do scouts and evaluators, how do they look at pitchers on, you know, guys who have this strikeout stuff versus guys like Bloom who are more of finesse and pitch to contact guys
3: well honestly what it is a lot of these guys and it's you know it shouldn't be viewed as a negative term but these are the guys that fill out the lower minor league rosters and then once they're on those rosters you see some of them break out because basically velocity velocity in this day and age is sort of the entrance exam to to being a draft prospect but you're going to have to draft some of those lower velocity finesse guys that rely on deception in the later rounds. And then inevitably one or two of those guys that you draft like that are going to break out in short season ball or something, you know, all of a sudden we're going to see, wow, they've got one ERA and all of a sudden they race up the boards and become, become your specialists in big league bullpens. And that's, you know, that's why every year we still see some of those guys break out and become big leaguers. So they get drafted late and they have to establish themselves in the minors, but, they're still out there every year, and teams know that. You need, you need those types of guys in the lower levels of the minors, and once in a while, they're going to break out. Now, the last two guys I want
0: to touch on specifically are both junior college transfers, both from LSU Eunice: Will Watson, who's a junior, Madison Nickens, who's a senior. They're both similar in some ways. They both showcase a lot of speed. Nickens is a little bit more reliable, perhaps defensively. Watson a little bit more reliable on the offensive side of things. Do they have a chance here?
3: There's a chance. I I would say an outside chance, but because they show that combination of speed and power, they both hit some long balls this year. And like, you know, like you said, there's there's speed, there. tools go a long way and they do have tools. I mean, Nickton's has struggled this year and and Watson has shown some signs of life, but they're both athletic. They both can run. So is there a chance? Yes. Is it an outside chance? Probably, but they're going to at least come under some consideration because physical tools ultimately will always get you attention
0: now as as we kind of wrap up this conversation I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit with with a couple different things I hope that's all right the first the first one I'll put you on the spot with is of Maryland's roster right now if you had to pick one guy to reach the big leagues
3: first who would it be first I would say Schaefer I think he's if you're playing the odds and looking for a guy that can get there quickly That's probably your safest bet. He's got the least amount of discernible flaws.
0: And from a perspective of who might have the best major league career?
3: I still go with Kevin Smith. I loved him over the summer. I still think it might take you some time to get all that potential out of him, but that's a really special skill set for a guy that can play short, a guy with power. I bet on that type of guy all day long.
0: Now, turning our attention to the Terps that have previously been drafted, I'm curious what your thoughts are on are some of the guys from the last couple years. There was a huge draft two years ago for Maryland with a couple of top five rounders like Brandon Lau and Alex Robinson. Lamont Wade has really shot up the twin system. Mike Schwarn has come on over the last few weeks to be absolutely lights out in low A in the Red Sox organization. Of the pro Terps right now, who might be the next guy to wear a big league uniform?
3: Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I like I like Schorn, and I, I, I'm trying to think. There's probably guys that are further along in the system. but
0: The first one that Schorn... comes to my mind is, is Adam Kalaric, who's a left-hander with the Durham Bulls, and he's been pitching well in ERA under 1 in 15 appearances. So he seems like the most logical guy, but looking at just kind of the last couple of years, I guess, um, kind of projecting things down the line.
3: Yeah, if you're looking at the last, if you're looking at the last couple of years, it's it's got to be sworn because because of, of all the polish. I I really if, if he stays healthy and continues to you know to roll the way we know he can, the polish is there for him to be exactly that type of fast mover that that teams that's, that's why they wanted him because of his command because of his ability to miss bats and throw strikes. I think he's the kind of prototype college guy that you expect to move up quickly. So I I I put my money on him. Was he a steal for the Red Sox in the fifth round last year? I think a hundred. I think a hundred percent. I thought it at the time. I, you know, to get a guy with that kind of pedigree, the guy that's pitched in the games he's pitched in, and I, I it's still amazing to me that he lasted so long. I, you know, it made it made some sense at the time, but I, you know, if you look back at the pedigree and the stuff he's shown, that's a great get in the fifth round.
0: Finishing up with this current Maryland roster of the guys that we've discussed, who do you think could be? the best return on investment the best sleeper pick the most the biggest surprise
3: i think it's probably selmer if you're you're balancing if you're balancing guys that are going a little bit later you know as opposed to how quickly you're going to get value out of them selmer is a very easy to project out of the bullpen guy and we've seen how valuable that commodity is in the big leagues now so I, i i would definitely put some you know some some stock in him and his ability to kind of quickly become a guy that's going to pitch in the sixth, seventh inning of a big league game, and I think you got to like what he's got in terms of movement and life, and, and the command has gotten a lot better. And with his size, that that's a that's a nice investment in a guy that could pitch pretty. He could pitch pretty high in the minors pretty quickly, and I think within a couple of years you could see in him in the big leagues.
0: Well, the Major League Baseball draft set for, well, less than a month from today. First round gets underway on June 12th and the following rounds the next couple of days. It'll be really interesting to see where some of these Maryland Terrapins end up and then, you know, how they progress through the minor leagues. So, Frankie Polari, thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoy your insight both verbally and on D1Baseball.com. Looking forward to hearing from you down
3: the line. Absolutely. Happy to help.
0: Welcome back to this edition of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. Jake Eisberg alongside Justin Galanti. We just heard from Frankie Polari from D1Baseball.com about some of Maryland baseball's draft prospects, and we're going to dive into them a little bit here, even though we just did with Frankie, some of our thoughts on these players. There are some at the top of the draft board, I should say, Justin, like Kevin Smith and Brian Schaefer, that are pretty much locks as top ten round picks, maybe even top five round picks, depending on how scouts evaluate them Other guys that could be taken and selected in the draft that we talked about with Frankie, Ryan Selmer, Marty Costas, Mike Racino, Jared Price in there as well, and then maybe some late-round picks like Brandon Gum, Justin Morris, maybe Madison Nickens gets an opportunity, Zach Jankarski, Jamal Wade, Marty Costas. All in all, there are a lot of Terps who are going to be departing this program, whether as seniors or as draft picks heading on to professional baseball.
1: Right, and I think this program has gotten to a really good place where They have tons of guys playing at the next level. It was just a day ago that the best pitcher in Maryland history, who mentioned it earlier, Mike Schwarren, he got called up to high A ball for the Boston Red Sox. He's in their top 15 overall ranked prospects. And for the program to continually send players to the professional ranks, maybe not so many in the MLB yet, but that's going to come. And then it'll become a filter system where the recruiting keeps getting better and better, and it's great for the program. Talk specifically about these guys. I mean, there's a very good chance we could be seeing some of them on big league ball fields someday. The top two, you would have to say, are Kevin Smith and Brian Schaefer. But there are a couple other guys. You know, Ryan Selmer's six eight. You can't teach six eight. Jared Price was touching 95 in the Big Ten tournament. You can't teach that a- either. Mike Rosino's got great stuff. Jamal Wade's been pitching for four months and he's already throwing 90 plus mile an hour fastballs and nasty breaking balls. So there are a lot of there I'd say there are two really really good prospects for the Terps in this potential draft class of Schaefer and Smith and then a bunch of super high upside guys
0: I think you could really include Ryan Selmer is a solid draft prospect in this draft he's a redshirt junior so he's senior age just has one year of eligibility left because he redshirted his freshman season but he's Of that age, where you know you expect him to kind of go to professional ball this year, or I guess the next year, considering his eligibility. But I think between Smith, Schaefer, and Selmer, you're looking at three guys that can no doubt have success at the next level. Then a couple other guys like Jared Price and Mike Racino, who are some hard throwing right handers that have very high ceilings. If they can figure a couple of things out, teams will take a chance on guys like that back into the bullpen, guys. We saw the success that Jared Price could have. We saw the success that Mike Racino could have. Racino was drafted last year and could go around the same spot this year. And then there are guys like Jamal Wade who could benefit from coming back another season and really honing that pitching, really new experience for him. And then on the other side, guys like Marty Costas, a draft-eligible sophomore who just put together a
1: sensational season. He might benefit from coming back again. Right, and the question becomes... How high can you get drafted? Can it get any better if you come back? I mean, just to talk about, for example, a guy like Brian Schaefer. Is there anything Brian Schaefer could do next year to improve his draft stock? The answer is probably not because he was amazing this year. Now, Jamal Wade, one of the reasons he is an attractive prospect is the fact that he has virtually no wear and tear on his arm because he's only been pitching for two and a half, three months, which is very impressive. Mike Racino coming off an injury, but you hope all the stuff comes back. And if it does, that guy is somebody who can pitch at the next level. So it's always tough to decide, is it better to come back or or go forward? You look at a guy like Justin Morris, maybe. Maryland has a roster loaded with catchers, and he's a very, very... Very good defensive catcher. And had a really strong end of the season, yeah, too. Yeah, he showed what he can do with the bat. I think Justin Morris is kind of a legitimate pro prospect, to be honest with you, because you don't see too many left-handed hitting catchers. So it's always a tough decision. It's the same in every sport. Um, the way I look at it, and I've never been drafted or been close to being drafted. I'll Neither be, have I. No, but I'll be eligible next year, so we'll see. You're probably <laughs> done. Uh, but I look at it as... You know, is this the highest my stock will ever be? If the answer is yes, um, you go. If the answer is no, probably not. Just to pick on, not pick on him again, but mention it again, I mean, I think the factor of the unknown right now is something that's interesting with Jamal Wade. If there's another year of pitching and another year of wear and tear, it could go way down, it could go way up. I mean, he's got all the upside in the world.
0: Right, a guy who throws 95 with a curveball that's in the dirt at 80 miles an hour, in the strike zone even, it can be really filthy and a, and a deadly combination. There are a couple guys who don't have the chance to improve their draft stock. They're seniors. Their eligibility has expired. Guys like Madison Nickens, Brandon Gum, and, and Nick Cieri. We talked about Brandon Gum earlier in the podcast as a guy who really should get a, a late-round look for the season he had. Really, all five seasons he had at the collegiate level an over 300 college hitter, flash some power, really good defensively, really a brilliant baseball player, the, the baseball IQ off the charts. A guy like Madison Nickens, tons of tools, they're there. Didn't necessarily put it together with the batting average this season, but has the speed, has the glove, certainly has the personality that you would want in your ball club. And a guy like Nick Cieri, who maybe, like we said, didn't necessarily put it together with the batting average this season but has proven that he can do it, at least with the boot bat, hitting over 300 in the Cape two years ago. And well, with the eye that we saw at the plate this year, more walks than strikeouts, well, that's something offensively
1: that can really come around. And you talk about a guy like Brandon Gum to start with, he can really, really hit. And I think the key for him uh, in moving up at the next level is can he get that arm fully healthy? Because while Brandon is a really solid hitter, he's not the prototypical first baseman. He probably can't advance through the ranks at that position, but if you move him to another spot that's maybe not such a power predicated offensive position um, for you know where a guy plays defensively, first base, third base, right field, things like that, Uh, Brandon, I think, would have a chance, a a really solid chance at the next level because you don't find too many guys who know the game the way he does and can hit the way he does. The way he adjusted coming into a new program, knowing he would only be here one year this year, it's hard to explain how impressive that was. Other seniors, I mean, Nick Sieri, another one. You you, You can't teach teach 63250. Madison Nickens, you can't teach that arm, you can't teach that speed. So there are a lot of tools to work with the, with these guys and you've used used the word hone in on a few things a few times. I think that's the key. If some of these guys can figure a few things out, who knows, we could be seeing some impressive things at the next level.
0: The MLB draft, just a week away, getting started on June 12th and then continuing the subsequent days, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. We'll be following along, and you can check out all of our draft preview coverage at MarylandBaseballNetwork.com. We're going to be taking a look at each of the draft-eligible Terps and kind of taking a look at their outlook, where they might go. And, well, you can refer back to this podcast for a little bit more information if you want to listen to it rather than read it. So that'll do it for this edition of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. But first, Justin has
1: some final thoughts. Well, buddy, I mean, I've done this a couple times already, but I feel the need to do it again. I've been driving the Eisenberg bus the last few weeks. (laughs) I mean, I've been up front. There have been tons of people who have gotten on with me, but I think I feel like I should be the last one to thank you for everything. Um, The number of people that I've heard thank you and say how much they appreciate everything you do um, is staggering. And just on a personal note, I can't thank you enough for everything this year. Um, you know, coming in as a transfer student myself, um, you slid into my DMs this summer. <laughs> this is this is true. This is true. Talking about the Maryland Baseball Network and I was looking forward to it. Didn't quite know what to expect and um for me it, involved, it evolved into something really really special. I, I enjoyed every game I did with you, whether it was baseball on Maryland Baseball Network or other things on WMUC Sports, doing this podcast late every Monday night. Uh, turned into And, boy, it, it was late. We did some of these at, like, 2 in the morning. And we did. Uh, it turned into a routine that I looked forward to every week. And um, I'm really looking forward to taking the reins here and, you know, being serious now. But not sure I'll ever have as much fun as I've had calling games with you. It's been a pleasure. Um, I've learned an amazing amount. I can't even begin to describe or even thank you enough for it. And I wish you all the best in Brooklyn. I hope we'll stay in touch. Um, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you.
0: Well, that that means a lot to me, Justin. Thank you for all you've done this season, and you guys will do a fantastic job without me. You won't even know that I'm gone. You'll see what happens next year. Um, but now we wrap things up on this edition of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, the 40th edition of this podcast. Special thanks to Frankie Polari of D1 Baseball for joining us. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Net for updates on Terps and the Pros and summer baseball throughout the months of June, July, and August. Like us on Facebook for more information as well. If you like the podcast, subscribe in iTunes by searching Maryland Baseball Network. We're taking the summer off for the podcast, but it'll return in September. Be recorded monthly during the off season, and then back to its weekly status during the 2018 season. Also, make sure to stay tuned for all of our MLB draft coverage on MarylandBaseballNetwork.com. Now, before I sign off, I want to thank everyone who listened to the broadcasts, followed the coverage on com, followed us on Twitter, liked us on Facebook, subscribed to the podcast, you name it, any kind of support. Maryland Baseball Network wouldn't be what it is without it, and we wouldn't be able to do what we do without all of your support. For me personally, it's really been a true privilege to be able to bring you these Maryland baseball games to you whenever you weren't able to be there in person. I've been so, so lucky to have the opportunity to get to know an amazing team, an amazing group of people, and tell their stories from Ryan Selmer's amateur magic tricks to Brian Schaefer's movie nights and cinnamon bump pancakes to Ryan Hill and Madison Nickens' quest for the perfect hair, and really so many more fun stories that have been told on this podcast and on the broadcast throughout the year. It's been nothing but absolute fun this season and each of the last three seasons as well. There are a few people who really need to be thanked for everything that we've been able to do. First and foremost, John Vitas and Matt Present, who created the Maryland Baseball Network back in 2015, and Brought me aboard as a sophomore with little to no experience, taught me so much, and trusted me enough to send me to Minneapolis for the 2015 Big Ten Tournament as a sophomore who had called five baseball games, sitting in a press box at Target Field by myself, trying to figure out how I ended up where I did, and I can't thank them enough for for taking that chance on me. The Maryland coaching staff, John Sheff, Rob Vaughn, former Maryland pitching coach Jimmy Ballinger, current pitching coach Ryan Fecto, Corey Haynes, Anthony Papio, all of them for seeing the value that MBN brings in, in supporting what we do. Also, Matt Swope, the director of baseball operations, who will I assure you be a future podcast guest. We'll we'll do our best to make that happen, and, and make, just for Matt Swope, making sure we were prepared and, and in the know, and that goes hand in hand with Megan Kane, who makes everything that's anything possible, large or small, truly the the, the wheels on the bus behind the team. The utmost thanks goes out to Maryland Baseball SID, Taylor Smythe, my roommate on the road, a fantastic friend, who put up with our constant media necessities and our requests for notes. Was an admirable color commentator for the last two years as well. It was always enjoyable to have him on the air with us on the podcast and really in any capacity, certainly may miss the time spent with Taylor. Finally, a heartfelt thanks to the entire Maryland Baseball Network staff over the last two years for contributing really to the greatest experience of my life. Maryland Baseball Network is in tremendous hands going forward with Chris Rogers running our website and Justin Galanti handling our broadcasts and this podcast. They'll do an outstanding job, and I can't wait to follow along and tune in as a fan next season alongside all of you. So, for Justin Galanti, I'm Jake Eisenberg. It's been an absolute honor. So long.